0: From the PA Foundation, I'm Shannon Jackson and welcome to Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. I'm here today serving as your host to discuss the role of mental health in pain and pain management and how addressing mental health can help prevent the misuse of prescription opioids. I've been a certified PA for the last 10 years, and I've worked in a variety of roles, including rheumatology and family and internal medicine, and I'm currently a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at Mercer University here in Atlanta, Georgia. I have also recently been a guest faculty contributor and speaker for the PA Foundation's presentation, Preventing Prescription Opioid Misuse, Addressing Pain Management via Telemedicine. And today, we're going to be discussing that very topic. So we know that on average, about 65% of depressed people also complain of pain. And patients with a history of depression or other mood disorders are at increased risk for substance misuse. Here to help me to discuss this importance of addressing mental health with your pain patients is Dr. Jill Mattingly, PAC, the Chair and Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at Mercy University, and Dr. Mattingly's experience includes internal medicine, rheumatology, integrative medicine, and addiction medicine. Dr. Mattingly, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Shannon. I'm real excited to be here today and discuss this really important topic.
0: So first, before we begin, um, tell us how you got into medicine and what shaped your interest specifically in behavioral and addiction medicine.
1: Wow. It's been a journey. I've been a physician assistant for over 22 years and like you said, mainly practicing internal medicine and then addiction medicine. I actually went to PA school in Atlanta at Emory University and currently, as you said, the program director here at Mercer University in Atlanta. I've been practicing clinically since starting um, my academic career at Grace Village Clinic for Refugees in Clarkston, Georgia, and prior to Mercer, I was the Director of Operations and Lead PA for Breakthrough Addiction Recovery in Norcross, Georgia, for several years. So I treated patients with opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and other substance use disorders. I'm also right now serving on American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM um, Fundamentals Program Planning Committee, and do those fundamental courses nationally. also help to plan ASAM's opioid use disorder courses and have been doing the waiver courses nationally as well. And I've been helping the PA Foundation as well, preventing prescription opioid misuse and working on their present venture as well in the presentation with you.
0: So thank you so much for your introduction. And, you know, as providers, we know that pain and mental health intersect in many ways. And from what you've seen, given your background, how might chronic long-lasting pain affect a patient's mental health and well-being?
1: Well, you know, all of those things are huge discussion topics. And, you know, so you really can't cover them all in a podcast. But what we need to start with is kind of talking about what is chronic pain and how do you think about chronic pain? Mm -hmm. When I think about chronic pain, I think about rheumatology and what I saw in internal medicine, Uh, the degenerative diseases like osteoarthritis inflammatory diseases like you know, autoimmune issues or rheumatoid arthritis as well as problems with chronic pain like fibromyalgia and it doesn't necessarily have to be rheumatologic it can be things like migraine disorders or GI disorders can produce chronic pain the key thing is however if someone is dealing with chronic ongoing pain it's going to probably have an effect on their sense of well-being and their quality of life. And those types of challenges can actually lead to mental health issues and eventually turn into actual diagnoses, mental health diagnoses. The most common being things like depression and anxiety. However, there are people that may uh, progress into panic disorder or somatic disorder among other types of mental health issues.
0: You know, um, you're exactly right and you bring up some excellent points. And as I mentioned earlier, I've worked in rheumatology as well, and I would see a number of chronic pain patients, including those with, you know, the different forms of arthritis and fibromyalgia, like you named. And one thing that I would observe is that depression and pain went hand in hand with each other. So if a patient's pain was at high levels, this would worsen their depression. And on the other hand, if their depression was worsening, then their pain would worsen as well. But beyond that normal interplay of pain and mental health, things became more dire over the past year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Not only did our patients across all specialties have a harder time accessing care, but the mental health of people worldwide took a pretty big hit as well. Um, the CDC found that reports of depression and anxiety went up significantly during 2020. And unfortunately, this disproportionately affected specific populations like essential workers and minorities. But we've also seen higher rates of anxiety and depression in 18 to 24 year olds. Um, to your knowledge, what does recent data show regarding this matter?
1: Well, Shannon, the data is pouring in. And now that the pandemic seems to be winding down, we think, um, we're seeing more and more data come out from this past year. During the pandemic, there was a little bit trickling out from the CDC. I also was preparing to do a presentation and found on census.gov, there were some surveys that really came in handy knowing what was going on in terms of mental health in the population. This survey, the Household Pulse Survey, it actually was asking household experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. So it was asking like versions of GAD-7, and anxiety survey. It was asking things about depression. And some of the, the numbers that have come out have been very shocking. And I just think it's the tip of the iceberg. As a matter of fact, I have a few things here. Uh, the average share of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder in January through June of 2019, pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. was around 11%. And then when you did that survey again in January 2021, it had jumped to 41%. Wow. That is a big jump. Yeah, it they is. also were looking at things like income level. They were looking at job status, whether job loss occurred. They were looking at age. And in all of these areas, you could see a big jump. And bigger jumps that you just mentioned were in the young people, 18 to 24-year-old, reporting anxiety and depressive disorder or symptoms. The other thing is all adults reporting around 41%, as they said, we saw actually increase in Uh, people with minority status, they were over that 41% reporting issues with depression and anxiety. And then something that we heard of a whole lot this past year is essential workers. You know, the frontline workers, our friends and colleagues, the frontline workers were the essential workers, and then others in the grocery stores Mm -hmm. and, and so on you saw a huge uh, increase in reporting uh, mental distress and substance use in essential workers. And that brings me to the more um, distressing information and data, and that is about adults contemplating suicide. In this survey, it was showing in late June 2020, and that's just right in the beginning of the pandemic, June 2020, adults were contemplating suicide at alarming rates. It stated that 21.7% surveyed of essential workers were contemplating suicide, Mm. 25% of 18 to 25-year-olds. And then something that wasn't mentioned is 30% of unpaid caregivers that care for adults like their parents or elderly we're actually contemplating suicide. Uh, that strikes me as we're just beginning to find out how much has happened and what's going to start rolling out.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that meaningful data with us. But just to take a, a spike turn, let's talk a little bit about substance use specifically. So when we are paying attention to the patient's entire well-being and not just their specific pain complaints, We know that we can reduce their risk of addiction and also help them heal at the same time. But with the increased rates of depression and anxiety that we've been talking about, we know that rates of substance use disorder went up significantly during the pandemic as well. Uh, Can you speak to that point some, Jill? Oh, yes.
1: Uh, You know, in, in looking over the data and looking at substance use disorder, I found this quote, uh, a physician that works in as a chief of addiction medicine stated, COVID-19 dies in isolation, but unfortunately, addiction thrives in isolation. And you stop to think about that. You know, we poured lighter fluid pretty much on the fire Mm -hmm. by locking everyone down. Um, The CDC was on top of this trying to find out what was going on. And they started doing their surveys and collecting data in June of 2020, that 40 to 41% of adults reporting struggling with mental health, as I discussed. They were also struggling with substance use as well. And in that same survey, 13% of the adults surveyed stated they had started or increased substance use in June of 2020 as we were in the lockdown. Also, there's a lot of states that are starting to share their data, like Oregon, in May of 2020, was, was asking people in their state about substance use. They found 60% increase in their legal cannabis sales. They found 45% increase in liquor sales in the state of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Also, this is gets a little interesting, too, you know. People were working from home, right, mostly, yeah. and it in a survey that was done, it showed one in three Americans were reporting that they were drinking alcohol while they were working from home. Now, that's definitely not something you would be doing during the day at the office, no. so that's a change in drinking habits. So when I look at alcohol, I think alcohol, I call it the dangerous pandemic panacea. We have no idea how alcohol has actually been a an issue during this year um, and caused by the pandemic and the lockdowns. Um, we see that alcohol sales online went up almost two to four hundred percent and alcohol liquor stores, of course, the package stores stayed open. One interesting thing about alcohol that is starting to come out as well is who did uh, alcohol use disorder start to become a problem for mostly? Looking at it, it looks like the women in America were very hard hit by um, increasing alcohol use. And heavy drinking days that were reported by women have increased 41% compared to pre-pandemic rates. Now, you think, why? Why would women, especially with children at home and things like that, well, they, they're they thinking because they were shouldering more responsibility in the home with teaching children, caregiving, um, household tasks. That's just the tip of the iceberg, though. I think we're going to see lots of studies coming out in the next year really looking at what happened and what increased alcohol use as well as all the other substances.
0: You know, um, those are very interesting points that you bring up and we know that if a pain patient has developed an alcohol use disorder, that that can have serious implications for your treatment plan for them and may present challenges if you want to prescribe them something like opioids um, if they're having a pain complaint. And as you know, that's a very dangerous combination. Both of those types of substances used at the same time can cause complications like increased perception of pain, respiratory
1: depression. Absolutely. Accidental overdose, they're just starting to tell us what the numbers are. The San Francisco Chronicle recently had a story stating that the accidental overdoses in their city were triple the amount of their actual COVID-19 deaths. So I have a feeling we're going to see many issues with combining substances and causing accidental overdose.
0: You know, uh, those are very sobering um, things that we're having to deal with. Mm -hmm. And um, another thing that the pandemic seems to have brought about is an overall increased awareness of mental health and wellness. Um, Unfortunately, though, many mental health treatment providers are reporting burnout as they're facing increased demands and being overtaxed. And the use of telecounseling platforms has actually skyrocketed. How do you feel about counseling and other mental health services being provided via telehealth?
1: I am a big proponent of telehealth, increasing access to care, not just mental health care, but also regular health care. So I see this as becoming uh, more and more used as we go Post-pandemic and beyond, there's a lot of pros and cons when it comes to telehealth. I mean, you may see things like people wanting to do telehealth for mental health issues or substance issues because less stigma, or it's going to be absolutely easier access and time when you know the time it is to travel back and forth to an office or a hospital. Absolutely, so it's easier, um, and it's also HIPAA compliant, so you can count on confidentiality, but. We know everyone does not have the same access to technology, so technology can be a barrier. If you do need to do a very intensive exam or get x-rays or other procedures or take biopsies, of course that's going to be a barrier. But when, you, when it comes to mental health and substance use, boy do I rely on seeing that patient and watching their body language and how they present. And you may not be able to see all of that in a telehealth situation. However, I am very much in favor of more telehealth to increase the access to care.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree with that. And um, the PA Foundation has actually created resources for PA students to learn more about using telehealth to address pain. And one thing we want to make sure to convey is that PAs in all specialties will likely interact with patients experiencing pain and or mental health disorders. For example, um, when I was practicing full-time, I may have been seeing a patient with what could have been perceived as a simple headache complaint. And while I'm not a mental health specialist, I know the mental health of my patient could have a huge impact on how I worked with them and what kind of treatment plan I developed for them. Uh, What do you think students should know about assessing their patient's mental health even when that's not the reason for their visit.
1: Well, that's really medical communication and history and physical 101 for a PA student, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's helping them understand that this is not just looking at a pain problem, giving them medication and sending them on their way. Almost all visits have an element of counseling, have an element of education. Like you use the headache example the student needs to be able to assess, you know, if this is a migraine headache, that's a different etiology that, you know, that has a specific medication that can be used for it. But what if it's like a stress headache or a tension headache? There's a, there's a maybe more mental health component there. Yeah. And the students need to be taught how to assess for those mental health issues that may be happening. Like when you're having a conversation with a patient and getting a history or just discussing things with them, they can send out many red flags Mm -hmm. that you need to be ready to uh, put those puzzle pieces together. I mean, think of this. Like for depression, we were taught SIG-E caps, a mnemonic that stands for sleep changes, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor changes, and suicide. And Shannon, you probably could have said that right along with me because we all <laughs> yeah, learned that for the boards. Picking up on those things while you're discussing with your patient is of absolute importance so that you do not miss something that could be a life or death situation. And then what do you do when you do pick up on those red flags for things like depression? that's when you enter into knowing what to do next Mm -hmm. for that patient.
0: Oh, are there any screening or assessment tools that you would recommend that students and maybe even practicing PAs should be aware of?
1: Well, yes, and of course that's that next step is screening and uh, knowing your referral sources. So almost all PAs have had to do screenings in the midst of the seen patients. So we know about like depression screenings, PHQ-9, the HAMD for anxiety, the GAD-7, the GAD-2, which is shorter version, um, especially if you need a real brief type of screening. Those are all really good screening tools.
0: And then after administering these screening tools and questionnaires, uh, what do you do with that information next? What would you do next?
1: Well, I always tell students, Don't you dare do a screening, and then once it's done, stare at your patient, okay? (laughs) Right. You have to have your next step already in hand. So I say put in your back pocket your referral, uh, your LCSWs, LPCs, um, hospitals for intensive outpatient, intensive inpatients, any phone numbers, emergency phone numbers. You should have all of that ready to go so that you can present the referral to treatment to that patient right away.
0: And what about screening tools specifically for substance use?
1: Most of the time in your behavioral medicine courses, uh, you know, PAs, we learn about the, for, like for alcohol, cage questionnaire, the audit 10 and a shorter version, the audit C, to find out about drinking and to to qualify what the, and quantify the drinking and put them into like a mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder. Also, there are things for drug use, like DAST. There are things for withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal, and for opiate withdrawal. There's also an interesting tool called the TAPS tool, standing for tobacco, alcohol, prescription drug, and other substances. This is a great online tool you can do with your patient. That takes you through all of these things, especially because most patients don't just have one thing they're doing. Usually you find that they're doing multiple substances, and so it's a good idea to cover all of them if you're going to be screening.
0: You're exactly right, and that was very excellent information that you provided. And it's imperative that providers know what to do when approaching patients with these complex issues. So Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and knowledge with us today. This message is very timely and relevant to the challenges that we are currently facing as healthcare providers. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode today. And this episode of Vital Minds is supported by the Amerisource Bergen Foundation's Opioid Resource Grant Program, and is one element of a larger set of resources that you can find on the PA Foundation's website. To see the full suite of resources, visit pa-foundation.org slash addressing-pain-via-telemedicine. Thanks and have a wonderful day. This is Shannon Jackson with Vital Minds.